That was fun. You were fire. Oh my God. That was great. Appreciate it. <laughs> this is Van Color. We're at the West Coast. <laughs> My name is Mo Amir, and today on This is Van Color, I'm joined by a man who wants to be the Premier of British Columbia in 2021. Raised in Kamloops, BC, he boasts one of the most impressive scholarly resumes I've ever seen. He received his Doctor of Medicine from the University of Alberta. He was awarded a Rhodes Scholarship to the University of Oxford, where he obtained his first degree in law. He then went on to receive his LLB from Dalhousie University. He was a medical doctor across several different communities in British Columbia, while also serving as an emergency room doctor at St. Paul's Hospital. He then practiced law as a partner in the major national law firm McCarthy Tetralt, and he was appointed a Queen's Counsel in 2008. Since 2013, he has been a member of the Legislative Assembly in British Columbia, representing Vancouver Quilchenna, he is the former Minister of Technology, Innovation, and Citizen Services, and the former Minister of Advanced Education. He serves as the leader of the official opposition in the Legislative Assembly of British Columbia. He is the leader of the BC Liberals. He is Andrew Wilkinson. Mr. Wilkinson, how are you, sir? Good. How are you? I'm doing very good. I appreciate your time. Thank you for being here. Thanks for squeezing me in. Absolutely. Good fun. I've been critical of you and the BC Liberals in the past. That's but fair. I, I think it speaks to your character that you're here. And as a token of good faith, I want to lay out my cards on the table. I used to be a card-carrying member of the BC Liberals. I sat on a riding association. I volunteered my time. I attended conventions and training sessions. I've donated thousands of dollars to the party. I've done unpaid communications work. And I quietly stopped all of that in 2013 after quick wins. I am one of those people who feel disaffected by the party. But on many metrics, I am the party's target demographic. And I think the liberals understand that because in February, the BC liberals launched a very proactive recruitment campaign where you said we've been doing a lot of listening and a lot of learning. Now, I'm curious, what have you and the BC liberals learned? And what have been the results of re-engaging British Columbians now that the BC Liberals are in opposition? There are a number of layers to this. We can take it kind of chronologically. Sure. You know, the 2017 election was run in a way that uh, I think wasn't persuasive saying to people, look, look at the wonderful debt to GDP ratio. People don't care about that. Sure. And the NDP were in their living rooms offering them free bridge tolls and cheap child care and a renter's rebate, and they've broken all those promises. But we were on the wrong channel in the 2017 election, mm -hmm. in my view. And so you come out of that, we go through leadership race, and you say, we've got to change the channel. We've got to liven things up. Mm -hmm. Wilkinson's a new leader. He's certainly not Christy Clark, and he's certainly not Gordon Campbell. So what do we do? And as you've said, you say, well, what do we do with Wilkinson? He grew up in the interior, came as an immigrant from Australia, family didn't have a lot of money, worked very hard to get the skills and training that he and his brothers and sisters did, and Canada's been good to them. Mm -hmm. So that's the starting point of saying, let's celebrate Canada and let's celebrate opportunity in British Columbia and try to make it available to everybody. 
So pause there. Make it available to everybody. That means candidates, too. It's mm-hmm. not some insider club. Right. So the person who was then running the party office said, look, why don't we just open this up on the Internet? Say anybody can put their name forward to be a potential candidate. We got over 200 serious inquiries. Oh, wow. And we're chewing through those, sorting out their social media histories, seeing if they're good people and so forth. Sure. And that's the way we're going about it. So you can see how this idea of opening the doors for everybody is very important to me because I was never one of the cool people. I was always one of the outsiders, <laughs> the kid with no money, the kid from Kamloops, the you kid who like had to find cool his way. You seem like a pretty cool cat. Well, it took a while. <laughs> <laughs> I was not as socially confident at your age as you are now. Oh, the, well, thank you for saying that. Yeah, Fair enough. so that's part of it is saying if British Columbia is going to be successful, we have to have political parties that reflect that sentiment of – Uh, People thinking, well, it's a good place. I hope I can get ahead. Mm -hmm. It's got to be a place where opportunity is available for everybody, not just for the insiders or the select few, whether you're an immigrant or not, that Mm -hmm. kind of thing, language skills, you name it. And that works really well when you talk to communities about how we can make a difference in their lives with government that serves people. Sure. So it sounds like you're trying to walk the walk, basically. Absolutely. Now, one thing... I, I will give you credit for and, and one thing I, I will say that I have sympathy for is that I feel like you're in a tough position because whenever the BC Liberals critique the current government, whether it's a small issue like rideshare or a larger issue like housing, the common shutdown pushback is, well, you were in power for 16 years, so why didn't you do anything? What is your message to British Columbians, to people within your own party in terms of the leadership that you bring to this party and the leadership that you want to bring to government in two years if your party was to win? Yeah, there are two layers to that. First of all, getting the facts straight. We often hear from the NDP's housing minister that we didn't do anything for 16 years. That's just no right lie. There are about 7,000 single single, uh, occupancy rooms that were converted by the BC Liberals into supported housing for people who are otherwise homeless all over British Columbia. There were rent subsidies provided for tens of thousands of people so they could live integrated into their communities and not be stigmatized by living in social housing. So she is one of the worst defenders of just making up lies. They are outright lies. So once you've set this record straight, it's a matter of saying, look, We can always do better. That's the only reason to seek to go into government is to try to make it a better place for everybody. Sure. That's why I do it. So you say, okay, where are we going to go from here? Stick with the housing file. Think about Metro Vancouver. I arrived in British Columbia at a very young age, and there were 1.6 million people here. They're now 5 million. And like clockwork, every year, 50 to 60,000 people appear in British Columbia. Some are born here. Some come from elsewhere in Canada. Mm -hmm. Many come from elsewhere in the world. And they need to live somewhere. And nowadays, the vast majority of them will settle in greater Vancouver. So the next 25 years, they're going to be another million people here. Sure, yeah. And where are they going to live? What the NDP and John Horgan are doing are saying, oh, we're going to reduce demand and drive down prices. Mm -hmm. That doesn't provide a single stick of new housing for those million people. And for people like you who are probably on the rental ladder trying to find a place that you're comfortable with and maybe looking at eventually purchasing property, you've got to have that sense that there's hope at the end, that there's a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, or why bother trying? Sure. So housing is going to be a structural thing in our society. We've got to deal with it. And goes with that is transit Mm -hmm. because we can't all get on the freeway and drive to Maple Ridge to go to a house with a puppy dog in the backyard. Sure, yeah. So 
this idea that 16 years is somehow an allegation is just dead wrong. Mm -hmm. The reason the NDP have been successful so far in maintaining a balanced budget is because we gave them a very strong economy with a large bank balance, Mm -hmm. and they're busy frittering it away. Now, you've really touched on housing and transit in in that response. Do you feel that those are two things that maybe contrast you from the previous BC Liberal leader? Yeah, you know, it's a chance to turn the page and do things differently. Sure. Christy had very different priorities than I do. Mm-hmm. I live in Vancouver. I grew up in Kamloops. I've worked all over BC. So I have a pretty good sense of what the interior is all about in Vancouver Island because I've lived there yeah. and worked there. And then once you come back to Vancouver, you start to realize that the major issues here are that incomes just do not correspond to the cost of living. The cost of living is extremely yeah. high here, and a lot of those we reasons, feel that <laughs> a lot of those reasons are driven by government, by extremely high auto insurance rates, by mm-hmm. the highest gas prices in North America, by sky high real estate prices. The NDP's answer is: well, taxes are good for the workers and the public, so you should pay a little bit more for ICBC, and you should pay a little bit more for gasoline because it's good for you. And at the end of the day, your housing is going to be no cheaper, so you're left with less money in your pocket, and you can't get into the housing game. Sure. That's just not fair. Let's get into these taxes. I mean, the BC Liberals have always positioned themselves as the fiscally responsible party, and you've been very critical, as you just have mentioned, of the 19 new or increased taxes under the BC NDP. But when you pull... BC liberal voters, there's a lot of these taxes that they think are favorable, that they like, whether it's the foreign buyers tax, the increase on that, the additional school tax, which is more of a mansion surcharge, the speculation tax, the property transfer tax. Which taxes do you feel have affected British Columbians to their detriment the most? It's interesting. Depends where you are. If you're in the small business part of the economy, they tell us daily that the combination of employers' health tax, the rises in minimum wages, the increase in property taxes, which all get flowed through to these tenants in small businesses, mm-hmm. that's just the combination is just driving them over the edge. They can't compete with online shopping. In this part of the world, people will just go across the border of Washington State and spend their money if the prices get too high. Sure. So in small business, they're saying they're just being crushed by this new tax burden put on by the NDP, Yeah. which is ironic because John Horgan and the NDP say, oh, we support small business. Well, Not according to small business, you don't. And then once you talk about other things, property tax comes up all the time. And most people will say, oh, it doesn't seem to affect me much. Mm -hmm. But it hits them because things like the city of Victoria shut down its crime investigation unit because employers' health tax flowed through onto their payroll numbers and they couldn't afford to keep that policing unit going, so they shut it down. Do you feel that these taxes just maybe haven't been digested by... Vancouverites and British Columbians yet? Yeah, the NDP have done their best to keep them invisible to the average consumer. But where it flows through is when you go to the store, when you try to get something done, Mm -hmm. you find it all costs a lot more. It's gone, moved out of the range or the store has closed. So suddenly that person who's one step back from you can't afford to do it anymore. Or you find that it's cheaper to do it online, which puts the local business out of work. Sure, yeah. One tax I want to touch on that you've also targeted and being critical of is the carbon tax. Now, this was a BC liberal tax, but you're saying that the NDP have implemented it or changed it in a a different way. Can you explain to me in very layman terms why the BC liberal carbon tax was better? Here's a scoop. 
Back in 2007, 2008, Gordon Campbell introduced the carbon tax, and it was going to be per unit of carbon. So in a liter of um, gasoline, I think it's $10 of carbon tax translates to about two cents a liter. Mm -hmm. So that was implemented, and what happened over the next 10 years is our vehicle fleet became the most efficient in North America because people said, well, gee whiz, maybe I'll get a hybrid or I'll, you know, the taxis are smaller than they used to be. That kind of gentle nudge makes people change their behavior generally in a good way. Sure. What the NDP did was they came in in 2017 and said, oh, the carbon tax has always been offset by reducing income taxes. Mm -hmm. They said, forget that. We're just going to make it a tax grab which discredits the whole program. They said, oh, we'll spend it on environmental issues. Well, of the $2 billion they take in, $150 million goes in environmental-related issues, and the mm -hmm. rest is just put into general revenue to pay their union friends. And then the third thing that comes up in this is very important. Right now, because BC, under the Liberals, initiated a carbon tax, we are in control of our circumstances, because if we don't have one, there's a federal one that gets imposed on you. That's right. And so the sensible thing to do, and I say this to people all over British Columbia, no matter how red or blue their views are, that we should wait until after the federal election. Because if the federal liberals are reelected, we need to stay in control of our circumstances, control our own carbon tax, mm -hmm. and make it revenue neutral once again so it's not discredited or resented. Okay. You've been critical not only of the carbon tax, but the price of gas in, in B.C., and the B.C. Liberals have very publicly hammered Premier Horgan and the B.C. NDP in, in a campaign saying that high gas prices are their fault. And the B.C. NDP then responded with an inquiry. How are the B.C. NDP responsible for gas prices when it is a, it's traded at a global level and it's dependent on things like the exchange rate of the Canadian dollar? Yeah. Well, if you take the price of gas, let's call it $1.50 a liter. Mm -hmm. Today, I saw the pumps $1.479, I think. And it spiked up to about $1.759, which makes a lot of people's businesses not viable. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Couriers, delivery trucks, they just say, I can't do this. I'm going to lose money every day. Mm -hmm. So we said when it spikes up like that, the John Horgan should look at... Uh, capping or reducing the motor fuel tax. Mm -hmm. And that would give people a break at least. What the NDP have said is, oh, no, no, it's nothing to do with us. BC has the highest taxes in North America on fuel, the highest tax <laughs> anywhere in the Americas, about 50 cents a liter. That explains a lot of the difference. Sure. The other thing that, doesn't, that explains part of the difference is the supply is very constrained here. We get a huge amount of gasoline and diesel coming down the Fraser Canyon mm -hmm. in rail cars. It goes through Kamloops, it goes through Chilliwack, it goes through Langley. And if those trains crash like they did like McGantique, entire cities will be burnt to the ground. Right. And that's just fine with John Horgan because he doesn't want to do anything about the Trans Mountain Pipeline. So I, I understand certainly there are taxes attached to the, the price of gas. And I understand that you know government has some flexibility in terms of providing relief. If you were premier today, not 2021, but today, what would you do immediately to reduce gas prices? And conceivably, by how much would gas prices be reduced at the pump? We would say promptly, if gas prices surge up again like they did this spring, we'll give you a rebate on the motor fuel tax. That's just a gesture to people to make life a bit more affordable. And how many cents is that? It's probably three to five cents, depending on where you are. Okay. 
The other thing we would do is make the carbon tax revenue neutral again. Mm -hmm. So if you pay carbon tax at the pump, you will get it back elsewhere with reduced income taxes or otherwise. Okay. Some people will get rebate checks under one of these various systems. But the idea is it's not just a tax grab because you're stuck at the pump with no choice. Sure. The major thing, though, is to make sure that we have an adequate supply. Stop kicking Alberta in the shins. Stop picking fights. Mm-hmm. You know, BC is in a pretty precarious place. We consume something like a quarter of a million barrels a day of uh, petroleum products, mm-hmm. but we only refine about a quarter of that. We get a chunk of it from Washington State. We get refined products from Alberta. Sure. And we're busy picking fights with the suppliers. This makes no sense at all. Mm-hmm. And that's what John Horgan has insisted on doing. So you, I mean, three to four cents is still three to four cents on the dollar. Fair enough. But you would be looking at more structural, longer-term solutions, Yeah, basically. I mean, if you look at Gas Buddy, the website, and mm-hmm. look across North America, there's a 20% margin higher in BC, Washington, and Oregon. Yeah. It's because it's hard to get the fuel to this part of the world. There's no local supply of petroleum within those two states and province of BC. Mm-hmm. So we ship it in. Sure. Where do we ship it in from? Through tightened supply lines. That means it's expensive. Yeah. I want to shift gears a little bit here, and I want to talk about money laundering. And let's just start off with a simple question. Do you support the public inquiry into money laundering? The public inquiry is underway, and it has to get done properly. And we have total faith in Mr. Justice Cullen. He's a very, very experienced Superior Court judge with a lot of criminal experience, and Mm -hmm. he will do it the right way. And the nice thing about that is he's not about to be toyed with by David Eby. Because David Eby's made this into a giant political campaign, and suddenly there are demons and snakes under every liberal rock, and they don't want to talk about the fact that the only organization ever caught with their hand in the kitty in a criminal fashion was the NDP. In the 1990s, their people were convicted of a $4.5 million fraud on charities, and they have never paid back a nickel. And interestingly, the NDP being one organization federally and provincially, they're all united. Sure. They just lost a challenge against a $2.8 million judgment against them federally because they were mishandling constituency funds. Oh, interesting. Oh, this is on the federal level? Yeah. Yeah. So they're a lot less tidy than they want to talk about, but they try to just point the blame at us and keep screaming and jumping up and down. And they they certainly do. And I'm thinking about one of their sign-up drives, which was online. The BCNDP had a menacing photo of you, and they claim, <laughs> and with the subtitle or the, yeah, the caption yeah. saying, and I'm quoting here, Andrew Wilkinson and the BC Liberals could help British Columbians get the answers they deserve on money laundering by sharing relevant cabinet documents, but so far they've refused to do so. In February, Port Coquitlam Mayor Brad West weighed in on this issue speaking specifically about you. And he said, and please excuse my French, this is a quote. Go ahead. I don't know how someone gets away with shit like that. I'm fascinated that Brad West feels like he's got all this judicial experience (laughs) because the fact of the matter is we have written to the Ministry of the Attorney General and said, can you provide us with the documents for review? That was two months ago and we've seen nothing. Mm -hmm. So where does the shoe drop here? We're trying to get this done in an orderly fashion. The NDP are trying to make propaganda out of it. And the mayor of a small suburb is abusing me because he doesn't understand the law. Fair enough. When it comes to these cabinet documents that are being talked about, 
are you basically ready to give them up, but under the correct process? Is that what I'm hearing? You have to see what you're talking about first. Sure. Let's see what the documents are. Is yeah. it three pages or 3,000? I don't know. I mean, obviously, I don't have to explain this to you. You understand that the implication here in this messaging is that the way the public is reading it is that the BC Liberals either turned a blind eye or worse yet are complicit because they are hiding something. Well, pause for a second. I asked Premier Horgan in the legislature during what are known as estimates where they have to answer the questions, they can't blow you off. Mm -hmm. Would he provide the cabinet documents from the 1990s scandal where the NDP stole theft four and a half million dollars? He laughed it off and said, don't be ridiculous. Sure. (laughs) (laughs) So you see, we're trying to diligently figure out what documents they're talking about, see what's what the lawyers call probative and relevant. The NDP have blown off the disclosure of documents related to an outright fraud that they participated in. I want to bring up more criticism. And they got the money. <laughs> Remember, this whole money laundering thing isn't about the Liberals receiving the money. In the 90s, the NDP pocketed the money and spent it. Does that become a whataboutism when when confronted with accusations against your party? You're saying, well, what about them in There the are 90s? many old proverbs you can use. The pot shouldn't call the kettle black. I'm you not know, even saying that. I'm just saying... No, but there's another great one. People who live in glass houses shouldn't throw stones. Sure. I mean, the NDP have got to be consistent here and stop playing silly political games. And that's why it's so encouraging to have Justice Cullen in charge of this thing, because he will listen to none of that nonsense. Yeah. I want to touch on another guest that I had on the show that was critical of you, and you did bring this up already. BC Housing Minister Selena Robinson. Oh, yeah. The, the quote of hers was with regards to homelessness, that the BC Liberals were politicizing homelessness. And her words to your party were, dude, we're making things happen. Just get out of the way. Well, that's exactly what she said to 82,000 people in Maple Ridge who are a little fed up with Selena Robinson, just as the people in Nanaimo are, the people of Rutland and Kelowna, the people of Surrey, who are all being told to get out of the way by Selena Robinson, and they're getting a little tired of being told how to live. More, I guess, pertinent to this issue of homelessness. The mm-hmm. the question that I have for you is, you know, I think you're absolutely right. It's not that the BC Liberals did nothing on homelessness in the past 16 years. That's just not right lie. There, yeah. there may have been, I would argue, inadequate focus on that issue, but that's up for debate. What, what we can look at it and, and see is that in the 2017 election platform, there was no mention of homelessness. That's over. You're the new leader. What is the alternative that you're proposing and advocating for? I've been crystal clear on this. Prior to the last election, I think it was the winter 2016, there was a camp of 137 people that turned into the squalid mess just east of the Victoria Courthouse. Mm -hmm. That was eventually cleared up through court orders, and the people were moved to a place called 844 Johnson Street in Victoria, close to downtown. It didn't go so well for a few months, and then finally they got it set up properly. They have a a medical doctor there 40 hours a week. They have nurses there about 80 hours a week. They have security guards. They have people there who monitor the situation, keep people on track. Mm -hmm. It works at 844 Johnson Street. It's still there. Yet when the same issue comes up in Maple Ridge, what do the NDP do? They say, oh, no, no, no. It's unfortunate you're being moved off this land by court order from Mr. Justice Grower in February of this year. So what we'll do is we'll move you into these trailers stacked up, call it modular housing, and leave you to your own devices. Low barrier housing, do whatever you want to, sell drugs, 
you know, take all the drugs you want to in here. There's no support system there for these people. No wonder they're getting into a lot of conflicts with the locals. No wonder the stores are shutting down. No wonder people are fed up in Maple Ridge because they're treated so badly, not only the homeless people, but the citizens of Maple Ridge. Why can't they do what they did at 844 Johnson Street in Victoria? Because they're treating Maple Ridge and Rutland and Kelowna and Nanaimo as second-class citizens who don't deserve the best. So my, my question there is, and it's not to provide any pushback, it's, it's to actually see it how I think most British Columbians see it. Because you have Selena Robinson saying that there are wraparound services. You're saying that it's they're left to their own simply devices. Untrue. I've been to these places. It's just not You're true. You're saying there's no wraparound services No, there. well, what do you call wraparound services? I'm talking about the ability of people to be monitored. Someone cares about their well-being. Mm-hmm. They're strongly discouraged or prohibited from openly using drugs inside the facilities. The dealing and sale of drugs is prohibited in the facilities. Mm-hmm. That's not true at the Alouette facility in Maple Ridge. It's not true at the, um, the uh, Burnett Street facility that's being built in Maple Ridge. Why don't they enforce some rules to keep some kind of order in these places and keep people from dying? And further, the NDP have completely written off the idea of getting people off drugs. That's somehow not fashionable for them. Well, this, if this is your sister or your mum, do you want them just rolling around in the street getting Narcan once a week and getting resuscitated and going back on the street? Mm-hmm. I mean, treat the people as humans. Show them some respect. And instead from Selena, we get the answer, you don't know what you're talking about. She's the expert with no expertise in the field, I might say. Get out of her way. She knows what she's doing. Well, the people in those communities are fed up with Selena Robinson. Fair enough. I, I want to talk about... Another guy <laughs> that your party went out of its way originally to expedite as a candidate in Abbotsford South, but now he's clearly on in the, in the BC Liberals' radar, and, and it seems to be a thorn in your side. I want to talk about this current Speaker of the House, Daryl Plekis. I bet if you ask most people in the province who is Daryl Plekis, most people will not know. Absolutely right. Ninety-five percent of people haven't got a clue who he is. And the BC Liberals have taken serious issue with him. As and particularly his conduct as the Speaker of the House. Can you summarize for people who might not know who he is, what has he been doing that you feel has been inappropriate or requires him to leave his position? Daryl Plekis became the Speaker in a way we don't need to go through. Sure. It involved a lot of duplicity and a lot of backroom dealing and hidden agendas. He's then responsible for being the referee in the House which is to keep order and to keep things moving. And he has a kind of polite supervisory role over security in the legislative building. And this for 150 years has been done in a very low-key, orderly way by dozens of his predecessors. Mm -hmm. He instead decided to become an amateur cop, uh, judge and jury, the prosecutor. He thinks he's in some kind of spy novel where he's going to run around and root out corruption. So what does he do to root out corruption? He flies off to a one-party totalitarian state called China and talks to their people about parliamentary process in business class with a couple of his employees. He then rats out his employees for going shopping while they're in China. But Who he, paid for his trip, though? He, his trip was paid for by you and me. Okay, fair enough. He now has hired this person, Mr. Mullen, who was terminated from his job as a casino security guard for being drunk on the job. 
He then got a job at a federal prison. He has no qualifications. He is not a licensed investigator. He has no police experience. He is not a lawyer. He certainly is not a judge. And the two of them run around saying that at least four people are going to be criminally convicted and go to jail for something or other. They live in this fantasy world of spy novels and late-night TV intrigue. Their job is to be referees in the house Mm -hmm. and keep the place clean and tidy and functioning. But they have this grandiose idea that they need to spend a ton of money doing things that are totally inappropriate. And the former Chief Justice of Canada, Madam Justice Beverly McLaughlin, and there's no more respected person in this country, did a review of their actions Mm -hmm. and said they are way, way out of bounds. His job is to keep things clean and tidy, not to be an investigator. His role is administrative, not criminal, and he's way out of his depth. It sounds like he's going, some people would say he's going above and beyond his job, rightly or wrongly. And it is sounds that like, what they say about the police when they beat people up? Is no. that what they say about lawyers when they... No, I mean, but those things are illegal. Like a police beating someone up is legal. So I, Is my, it my, legal for Daryl Plekis to be investigating on a criminal matter? That I don't know, and that's what I'm asking you. What has he done anything to? It sounds like he's he's gone outside of his jurisdiction, is what you're Correct. saying. But has he done anything illegal that breaks rules of of the house? That will be seen in the long run. Right okay. now, we're in the thick of it, but certainly his conduct is totally inappropriate. His spending habits are egregious. He wanted to go off on a junket to Uganda this summer after criticizing his two senior employees for going on on unnecessary trips. He took a trip to London to buy a hat, all business class, <laughs> tens of thousands of dollars. Is that accurate? Yes, Just to that's buy a hat? accurate. Okay. That's entirely accurate. You know, I did a segment on this on, on CKNW, and it was the day after the Liberals walked out of the legislature, and we took in some callers, and they overwhelmingly supported him. Again, I don't think most oh, sure. people know who he is, but they think that he is, you know, he's been exposing the misspending of taxpayer money, and he's this crusader against cor- corruption who is simply just being spurned by his former party. Well, what pause would you, there. Pause yeah. there. So he did... Bring to light the spending by Craig James, the former clerk. Mm -hmm. That's a whistleblower function. The appropriate thing to do is write up a note and give it to the police and let them do their work. Mm -hmm. Instead, he decided that he's not only a witness, because he was in all these junkets himself, he's also the prosecutor, he's also the judge, he's also the jury. Grossly out of his bounds and completely unqualified for the job. And that's what Justice McLaughlin had to say. Daryl Plekis, do your day job. Don't live in this fantasy world where you're prosecutor, police, judge, and jury. Would you settle for him just scaling back on all those extra activities and and returning to what his job is? Or do you just want to see this guy out now? He's spending a ton of money on useless things. Mm -hmm. And as a taxpayer and as a citizen, I think surely we've got more things to worry about, like all those people with homelessness problems in Maple Ridge, than watching Daryl Plekis send his man, Mr. Mullen, driving all over North America at 50 cents a kilometer, supposedly to investigate matters at the Wisconsin and Iowa state legislatures. Sure. <laughs> I mean, you tell me how that's any benefit to you or me or how that does a thing to solve homelessness in Maple Ridge. Sure. I'm going to segue a little bit from all these trips to foreign influence coming into the province. The, sure. the, the BC Liberals have really come out against foreign interference in BC elections, particularly from foreign-funded activist groups. It should be noted the BC Liberals in the past, like 
probably other par- parties as well, have taken donations from foreign entities as well. Everybody did until the fall of 2017. Sure. My question is, what is the extent of foreign influence in our provincial politics? And what do you propose needs to be done? There's been a lot of work done about this, particularly related to the petroleum industry. A lot of it involves Alberta's scenario. In British Columbia, there's clearly a lot of um, NGO money that comes into here from outside of Canada, from Rockefeller Foundation, from various other American foundations. And they're designed to influence BC politics. Mm -hmm. There was a full-size billboard put up by the Dogwood Initiative opposite my campaign office in the 2017 election, accusing me of bribery and corruption. Really? Those are outright lies. They are falsehoods. I could sue them for defamation and win, but it's not worth the bother. Mm -hmm. So why is that happening? Because Dogwood Initiative and others have decided to try to influence the outcome of elections. That is wrong what involves money from anybody outside British Columbia. Mm -hmm. I think most British Columbians would agree with that. So what's the problem with the NDP acting on our legislation that we put forward? They've buried it. Because that's where they get their funding from for their collateral activities. You know, one of the last things that uh, John Horgan did before the hammer came down on foreign fundraising was to fly down to Washington, D.C., supposedly to talk to the Americans about softwood lumber. Mm -hmm. The real purpose was to pick up a check for $375,000 U.S. from the head of the United Steel Workers of America. Wow. Yeah, wow. Do you think that's worse or going by hat in London. <laughs> <laughs> I think you got to get these guys off business class and get them back into the legislature where they have some accountability. Sure. I, I want to end on one topic in particular. Politics has always been a contact sport. Especially in BC. Yeah, it seems like it. Do you think politics is increasingly becoming nastier? Or do you think it's always been this polarized? Well, it's hard for us to see the inside track from today's perspective. Mm-hmm. In the 80s, I didn't live in BC till 84. I was a kid here, but moved away and came back in 84. And in this that period of 82 to 84, it was extremely nasty, violent politics here. Violent? Yeah, there were uh, physical altercations oh, wow. about labor issues at the time because you and I wouldn't be so privy to this, but there was extremely high inflation, a huge amount of unemployment, mm-hmm. uh, extremely high interest rates, projects being canceled. There's a lot of labor tension, and it got very, very, very physically nasty. And there was this final set of phone calls to bring the thing to an end between union leaders of the time and provincial government representatives saying, we can't let our society unravel like this. This is just dumb for both of us. Sure. And they, they cut a deal to bring it to an end. So when we see Selena Robinson, Bo and Ma being vicious on social media, is that better or worse than those days? Mm-hmm. It's now more visible and common because everybody can be on the web. But it's not as deeply, truly vicious as it was. You know, the goal here is to create that accountability in the public. What's happening in the USA is poisonous. Right. What happened with Cambridge Analytica in the UK is criminal and wrong. Mm -hmm. So we've got to make sure we try to maintain that standard in British Columbia of doing things in an open, fair, honest way. And that's why it really goes up my nose when Selena Robinson just tells outright lies. It's interesting because I think when we talk about social media and the internet, you're getting news and information all the time. Whereas I think before, and again, I'm not old enough to comment on that, but I I feel like before you'd read the morning paper, you might watch the six o'clock news, and that would be your 
your hit, your political hit for the day, even if you were a political junkie. And now, you know, you can take a five minute break from work every hour and yeah, yeah. see what's going on the Twitter and Google News yeah. and all of that. And we're just constantly inundated. And, and it must be a lot of pressure, even as a politician, where you're just constantly in real time having to defend an attack. Yeah. And it's um, draining to a point. But then you start to realize that you don't need to address every lunatic out there. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> so you're actually better off just to try and address people in a respectful way. You know, the you're a, more of a social media guy than I am. Sure. But the the shift has changed from trying to get your name in the newspaper story with the editorialist in 1987 who write a half-page story about how clever you are. Mm-hmm. That's all history. Yeah. Now it's about producing the videos and getting the catch or the hook in in the first four seconds so that people watch the full 11 seconds. Yeah, absolutely. And if it's yeah. your mom, they might watch the full 30 seconds, but nobody <laughs> else will. Yeah. So it's much more short snappers. And I think the sad thing that's happened, driven by American electoral politics and by Vladimir Putin, Putin and a bunch of other nasty people around the world is there seems to be uh, a market for really vicious commentary. Mm -hmm. So I expect to be completely stabbed in the back by the NDP and Horgan and their friends in 2020. Because they'll be saying, I have horns growing out of my head and I'm a baby killer and I eat with a chainsaw and, you know, just... All untrue. We have to confirm that, yeah, right? I, okay. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Good uh, journalistic work, though. <laughs> just have to check. Need the comment. <laughs> um, do you think the tone of politicians and political staff and even the media has to be dialed back? Because I, I almost get the feeling that, and I've been caught up in this myself, I won't deny that, that there's this urge to get a dunk on someone. Yeah, and I think the spooky part is there seems to be no limit to the tolerance, so in particularly the USA, to a lesser extent in Europe, to places like the Philippines, mm-hmm. where the president comes out and says, sure, go and shoot people down the street because you suspect they're drug traffickers. I mean, what? When the president of the country says it's okay to commit murder yeah. on the slimmest pretense or with no excuse at all because you're selling scores or trying to get rid of your ex-spouse, that's a really sad state of affairs. Sure. And yet that... There isn't a sense yet that a crisis has arisen where people say, you know, this really is wrong. We've got to stop doing this. Mm-hmm. And so, I don't know where our boundaries are. We all hope that Canada has uh, a closer social climate so that we feel an obligation to each other because that's disappearing in many countries in the world. No sense of obligation to each other at all. So should politicians be dialing it back in Canada and B.C.? Well, we could start with Selena Robinson. We could start with uh, the NDP's members, Ravi Kailan and Bowen Ma, who have unrestricted viciousness all over the web every day. Wow. Well, I do have to say I appreciate you being here. Oh, for sure. <laughs> Great to see you. On, on, on this yeah, topic. My only of, question now is, though, yeah, please. how much closer are you to coming back to the fold with the BC Liberals? We have two years. You need an answer that one. We have two years, so there's a <laughs> lot to digest. Yeah. I was going to say, in, in the in the interest of you know, perhaps being able to speak to each other in a civil manner, can you ask Spencer Spruill to unblock me on Twitter? Oh, <laughs> I wasn't aware of that. <laughs> you know, He works for me. I, people wouldn't know that. And I gather you and he have had some kind of exchange. We had a, nothing, a, nothing I would say that was nasty. It was snarky. Him and Minister Robinson were going back and forth, and I had just done a hit on CKNW about temporary modular housing, so I stuck my nose in there. 
again, nothing nasty, but snarky. I probably deserved it, but uh, I feel like we can start fresh now. Yeah, it's one of those fine things where I don't get into that business of blogging people on social media and so forth. Sure. And so you almost think maybe it should be the sort of thing where you do it for three hours, 30 days, or three months, and then it automatically <laughs> reopens. You have to do a reassessment. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Sunset closets. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Before I let you go, I want your one-minute-ish elevator pitch for where the province is right now, where it's right. heading under the BCNDP, and in contrast, the province that you and the BC Liberals envision. Well, right now, we're in a turning point in a lot of the world's um, understanding of how things work, whether you think of Brexit and, and Boris Johnson in the UK or the state of the economy. Mm -hmm. uh, trade is in decline. Uh, there are big steel and aluminum tariffs that are causing a lot of problems between America and China. Canada gets caught up in this stuff. The interior forest industry is in a disastrous state this summer, largely because of the NDP's pricing policies. And so we have been rolling along in British Columbia for a long time now thinking, oh, yeah, things are going to be good. It'll probably get better. It's expensive, but I'll be okay. You look at the collapse in housing starts in the lower mainland. Car sales have gone down every month for 16 straight months. So this doesn't necessarily have to last forever. Mm -hmm. And we all have to be wary of the time when we say, gee, not only is the cost of living high, but I don't have a job. And that's really scary because people are often in debt to their eyeballs in this economy, mm -hmm. living off credit cards and thinking, it's going to be okay, it's going to be okay, I'm going to do all right. And under this government, there has been no attention whatsoever to the economy. They don't seem to care how the economy is stimulated or grows. They make noises about the tech sector, but have done absolutely nothing about the tech sector in BC. So that's the big worry. And what we say as the BC Liberals is, just hold on here. This should be a place where we all have that sense of optimism. The thing that brought us here in the first place, like my parents getting off a ship in Quebec City mm -hmm. way, way back when I was in diapers and <laughs> taking me on a train to Kamloops, getting off in the middle of the night. It was going to be okay because yeah. it was Canada. It was BC. It would Absolutely. all work out. Yeah. And we have to make sure that the generation under the age of 30 doesn't start to think, I'm not going to be as well off as my parents. I don't have a steady job. Mm -hmm. I got nowhere to live. The cost of living is going through the roof. I just can't do it here. Yeah, That's a societal failure. And we as the BC Liberals say everybody should have a fair chance to be the very best they can be. And this should be a province where everybody has a chance to get ahead with opportunity that's fairly spread, not for the NDP's union buddies, but for everyone. Well, on that note, Mr. Wilkinson, I appreciate your time. Thank you so much for being here. It's been great. I, I think it speaks to your character. And uh, I, I just want to wish you good luck over the next few years. And, and please don't be a stranger. I feel like the NDP are going to bring a guy to respond, and oh, yeah. you'll have to bring someone else to, to They'll respond. They'll bring in again. someone who says that I wear different colored socks and I have a dumb haircut <laughs> and I, I'm a sleazy guy. I can confirm they're the same color. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for having me. Your socks are much more glamorous oh, thank and you. attractive than mine. So <laughs> now that we've complimented each other's footwear, we are in good shape. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks so much. Good to see you. Ladies and gentlemen, a doctor, a lawyer, the leader of the BC Liberals. He is Andrew Wilkinson. And I am Mo Amir telling you that in a city where you can be anything, be colorful. Peace.